Thank you for joining us for the lessons from First Naz podcast. To be executed with him. When they came to the place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched, and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, too, by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him which, with these words, This is the king of the Jews. It may make me a heretic, and I'm sure that several of you will disagree with me. But I, I don't think what happened on Good Friday was primarily about God creating a transaction between people and God. Uh, I, we often talk about the reality that Jesus took our sin upon him when he, when he was crucified so that God would forgive us. Uh, we talk about it, though, in, in terms that make it sound like God had gotten so angry. He'd gotten so angry and frustrated and upset about our sin that only a human sacrifice would appease his anger. I don't believe that. I don't believe that God was so angry with human sin that only a human sacrifice would appease his anger. I don't believe that God was arranging the ultimate buy one, get one here where he accepts Jesus' sacrifice and, and we have no sacrifice to give. So what do I think was happening? You're probably wondering. Why? Why, why was it necessary for Jesus to die on the cross? Surely it's not a mistake. Surely, surely God could have stopped it if it was not God's will for Jesus to go to the cross. Um, and so why? Why would God purpose for Jesus to go to the cross. Well, I believe that the cross is the central point in God's reconciliation with us. The right relationship we have with God is because of the cross. I, I don't fully understand it, but I understand it well enough to understand that the cross reveals God's character. Wanting relationship with us so much that he was willing to pay any price. And then Jesus, as he, as he is on the cross, his first words are, Father, forgive. Jesus' plea for the forgiveness of those around him remind us that the cross and all of Jesus' life and ministry, they were always about God having a transforming relationship with humanity. Jesus was sent to earth so that people could have peace with God. And people ended up trying to reject God's offer through Jesus. But Jesus reminds us, even in death, even while being mocked. God wanted relationship with people. 
As a pastor, I've had the opportunity to, to attend several different trainings on how to deal with conflict effectively. Uh, as, as human beings, people, none of us likes dealing with conflict head on. We, we all tend to, to have one way or the other that we, we go on conflict. We don't handle it well on one extreme or the other. Either we, we escape conflict, we'll give somebody the silent treatment, or we, we go toward conflict and we attack uh, to the point of even even committing violence against the person we're in conflict with. Uh, one particular training that I've attended portrays these reactions people have to conflict on a, on a continuum. On one end of the continuum, uh, the escape and the absolute extreme is, is suicide, to get away from conflict, to remove yourself completely from, from life. And on the other end, the, the opposite, the extreme of, it, of attack is murder, to, to end the life of the person you're in conflict with. But the middle way, the middle way is to restore relationship and seek reconciliation. The way to not avoid conflict, but to deal with it in a healthy way, is through forgiveness. It begins with forgiveness. And so Jesus went to the cross to forgive the veil of his body was torn, and we were given access to God in a new way, in a holy way. It transforms our relationship with God. It opens the door for us. It's the first step in, in the possibility of us becoming more like Jesus. And it reveals to us that this was God's God's plan all along to, to draw us closer to himself because Jesus chose for his first words, Father, forgive. First, in this scripture, Jesus made a promise to a specific individual. I cannot find another example in the New Testament where Christ did this in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. 
However, this promise is also available still to you and me. In Luke 23, 42, Dismas, the criminal on the right side of Christ, said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And looking at several translations, Jesus replied in verse 43, first from the NIV, Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And from the Orthodox Jewish Bible, Jesus replied, Ribi milik homo shilak, heyam gan eden. Translated, it is Jesus said to him, I say to you today, with me you will be in heaven. From the inner National Children's Bible, Jesus said, listen, what I say is true. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And reading from the complete Jewish Bible, we find Yeshua said to him, yes, I promise that you will be with me today in Gan Eden. And for some of us, a favorite is King James Version Verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. I found a total of 47 different translations and their text. Or these are 47 that I studied. And I found that all of them were true to the original Greek. Verily, verily, or truly, listen to me. Amen. I tell you the truth. All these New Testament words are various translations, and they come down to one meaning. These are double oaths from Christ. That's what he was promising. These promises are absolute assurance the same as to provide a written guarantee. Therefore, affirming or swearing a pledge as an oath, such as a wedding vow, verily is an old-fashioned or religious word meaning truly. Thus, they are one and the same. It's God's way of giving his guarantee his promise, and look, we have it in writing. Second, our one and only Savior of the world hung on a cruel wooden cross with his arms of forgiveness wide open to all who would trust his name. The armies of heaven were at his disposal. 
what was it, 10,000 angels? But he could never respond to that jeering, insulting crowd. They were crying out, if you are the Son of God, come down from that cross and save yourself. For Christ to have done so would have slammed, closed the gates of heaven forever. Paradise lost for all of us. The mocking hatred of the crowds, the deceptive lies of the leaders, the twisted testimony of the false witnesses, and the foul deeds of the Roman soldiers, they were all amplified with the insulting sneers of the two criminals who were crucified alongside of him until one of them criminals became deeply convicted. He recognized the king that was at his side, and with a repentant heart he cried out so all that could hear him, this man has done nothing wrong. And then turning toward the Lord, he pleaded, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I doubt very much that this thief, this criminal, expected to hear Christ's merciful cry or reply to him. When Christ said, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Nor would this thief would he have anticipated the wonderful joy into which he would shortly enter. But immediately, his simple faith was rewarded with a promise of paradise from the Redeemer himself. The door to paradise was unbarred and the gates of heaven were thrown wide open to this repentant sinner who hung next to our Lord. For he not only gained the right to eat at the table of life simply because he trusted on the name of the Lord, but his sins were also fully forgiven. For it is written, all who call the name of the Lord will be saved. And I just like all of you to repeat with me John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true Each shame and reproach gladly
John 19, verses 26 or 27, when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Mary forced herself to look up at her eldest son. He was beaten, abused, suffering. She sobbed. But it was more like a dry heave. Her tears had long, long depleted, and her eyes stung. Stung like the sword of sorrow stabbed through her heart. It stung. She had another emotion, too, almost as strong. Fear. Uncertainty of her future. It seemed that everything, everything of her life hung on that cross with Jesus. Where was the privilege and honor of being the mother of the Messiah? Seems so very long ago she heard the angel's announcement. It felt very different then. Maybe he didn't care. Once he'd asked, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? He'd gone on and said, well, anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Perhaps only the spiritual mattered. Perhaps he didn't care about her earthly physical well-being. Perhaps. Well, she just didn't know. Then. Then Mary noticed Jesus looking at her. Look. He's struggling to lift himself up to speak. She concentrated to hear. Dear woman, here is your son. And he looked toward John who was standing there beside her. She knew it took great effort for Jesus to do that. She didn't even know how he did it. But it meant he does care. I think many people often think that Jesus died on the cross, that our great salvation is only, well, about the spiritual, the heavenly. We used to have the saying, maybe it's still around, but I, I you know, too heavenly minded to do any good, earthly good. But Jesus died for the kingdom now, as well as the kingdom future. He does care about our physical being. He does care about our earthly needs. Salvation is for our mortal as well as our spiritual being. But Mary's side is only half of Jesus' third word on the cross. He also spoke to John, his disciple. Here is your mother. I believe Jesus established a responsibility here for his followers to care for one another. We are all mother, brother, sister. We, as his disciples, share care together. Even in Jesus' most difficult physical time, it was important to him 
I believe then it is important to us, his disciples today. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Loma, Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever wondered how Jesus could even make such a statement? even though he was experiencing terrible pain and agony, and with all he'd gone through, have you ever wondered why still did he utter such words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even though he was experiencing terrible pain and agony, he surely realized, didn't he, that victory lay ahead? How could he then ask such a question of God? Was it by chance that in this moment he was bearing the full weight of the sin of the world and the knowledge that sin brings utter and absolute separation from God? Here was the one who knew no sin, and he was bearing the terrible weight of the sins of the world, my sins and yours. We could also say that Jesus would not have been Jesus if it weren't for the fact that he was experiencing the uttermost depths of human experience. Many of us, as we go through life, have times when we may find that we're in the midst of some terrible tragedy, some horrible occasion that we would never want to have been in, some kind of an experience where we may feel as if God has abandoned us. 
Experiences like that can be beyond our own understanding. We can't comprehend why God has left us or allowed us to be in such a, such a position. And we feel, in fact, as, we, as if we have been forgotten by God. If in these words he spoke there on the cross, we see Jesus where he is experiencing the very depths of human experience then I believe we can be assured that there is no place where we could go where he has not already been. He knows how we feel. Even this evening, I remembered a spot from quite a few years ago when I felt as if I had been abandoned by God. And I thought about that as I read and reread these verses where Jesus spoke the words, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me? Why have you forgotten me? But Jesus passed through the very worst and most tragic experiences of life, but then the light broke through. If we too, if you and I, cling to God, even when there seems to be no God, desperately and invincibly clutching the remnants of our faith, you can be assured, yes, you can be assured that at some point the dawn will break and you will come through. The victor is that person who has beaten, been beaten to the depths of life, and still, still holds on to the God they know loves them ultimately, expecting that the dawn will break through. For that is what Jesus did. That is what Jesus did for us.
thirst. Last uh, third from the end of what he says, spoke on the cross. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. No doubt, after many exhausting hours on the cross and following the humiliating trials, the cruel beatings, the merciless floggings, and the excruciating pain that seared through his body, no doubt the Lord's throat was parched. As his tongue was stuck to the roof of his mouth, with the depth of the meaning behind his words, I thirst, must never be overlooked. Christ was the Lamb of God who had paid the full price for the sin of mankind so that the full measure of God's wrath submerged him in all but one part of the law, which had not yet been fulfilled and without which his perfect life and substitutional death could have become the topic of philosophical debate. For Christ was to fulfill the whole law and carry out all prophetic scriptures in every detail. All the legal requirements that were listed in the Mosaic law with regard to the Passover lamb, the sin offering, his high priestly office, and his genealogical heritage had all been fulfilled to the letter and many hundreds of additional prophecies in connection with this person and mission had already been fulfilled. In minute detail, but in Psalm 69, we are told, they gave me vinegar for my thirst. In order for this part of the Masonic Psalm to be fulfilled, necessitated Lord Jesus Christ receiving a sip of vinegar for his thirst. And so he called out, I thirst. So that scripture might be fulfilled in all the details of his life and every facet of his death. Earlier, he had tasted, but he refused the original mocking offer of wine mixed with gall. For this would deaden his pain and cloud his thinking. Our Lord was to remain fully conscious as he drained the Father's cup of bitterness so that every scripture might be fulfilled to the letter. As it is written by the prophets of old, and so Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, cried out, I thirst, in order to fulfill the scripture. And so it was that a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips so that along with every other prophetic scripture that related to his first coming, the prophecy was also fulfilled. Oh yes, there was indeed an eternal reason that Jesus called out, I thirst, at the particular poignant moment as he hung on the cross. For three long hours, the wrath of God had been poured out in full measure on the eternal Son of God, so that by faith in his death, burial and resurrection, we might be forgiven our sin and made one with him. Amen, amen. <laughs>
But in order that all scripture might be fulfilled, and not one jot or title of the law, or the prophets be overlooked, Jesus said, I thirst. Though higher critics delight to scrutinize scriptures in an attempt to spiritualize the word or discover some small place of discrepancy, while other foolish and liberal-minded men attempt to discover some scriptural contradiction in order to discredit the word God in his Christ. We can stand firm on Christ's finished work, for he is the end of the law and the fulfillment of all prophecy, in order to bring righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ completed every prophetic utterance and the righteous requirement of the law, and his death for you and for me paid the price in full. Indeed, had one small section of the law or the prophets remained unfulfilled, his sacrifice would have been both insufficient and incomplete. And our faith would have been in vain. But praise God that Jesus cried out, I thirst, as he hung on the cross. Before he bowed his head, and said into your hand, I commend my spirit. Which day we'll take that one on.
Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Throughout his life, Jesus showed us how to live. He not only had words to teach us how to live, he showed us how to live. He spoke of being a servant, and then he took off his outer garments, took a basin of water and a towel, and began washing feet. He spoke of loving others, and he continually showed his love by healing the sick, casting out demons, associating with the outcast, the hurting, having meals with sinners. And now here on the cross, in excruciating pain, here on the cross as he hangs naked and humiliated, here on the cross as he hangs as a sacrifice for your sin, for my sin, here on the cross Jesus shows us how to die. A person's last words speak volumes of the life of faith they've lived. And Jesus is the ultimate example of that. And his example has been followed down through the centuries. Remember the first martyr, Stephen, as he was being stoned to death? He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. As St. Augustine's mother, Monica, was passing away, she quietly said, in peace I sleep with him and find my rest. Wenzel Gansford, the Dutch theologian of the 1400s, as he was passing away, he declared, I know only Jesus, the crucified. Christopher Columbus, dying in the early 1500s, quoted Jesus on his deathbed as he said, O Lord, to you I commend my spirit. John Milton, the English poet and intellectual, of the 1600s declared, death is the great key that opens the palace of eternity as he was passing away. Yes, our life and living can be placed in Jesus' hands now in the process of life. Jesus not only told us how to do that, he showed us how to do that. And Jesus shows us when life comes to an end how we can place our spirit in the loving hands of God for eternity. May the way we die reflect the way we, we have lived. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us not only how to live, but also how to die with these words from the cross, Father, into your hands,
I commit my spirit. It is finished. So the gospel writer John gives clarity to the shout that Matthew and Mark record at their narrative story of the crucifixion of Jesus. John leaves us with a word translated in the Koine Greek, tetelestai, which does mean it is finished. Or it can also mean it is completed. And yet, subtly, there's another meaning that was added to that word. Oftentimes, it was written over a bill that had now been resolved, as if to say the debt had been paid in full. More than likely, though, Jesus did not utter the Koine Greek word tetelestai. In all probability, he would have spoken in Aramaic. And the word that he would have used would have been mashalam. It comes from the root word shalim, which has rough translated uh, peace. 
has been accomplished are very simply, it is done. Ironically, that is the same word, by the way, that you would find in Genesis 2, where it tells of the Father God, Creator, coming to complete the final work of his creative work of creating humankind. And after he finishes it, he takes his rest. I believe that Jesus, from a very early age, was very well aware and committed to his mission and his life purpose. In fact, we get a glimpse of that in in Luke's story of, of the life of Jesus when, as a boy, he travels with his parents into Jerusalem, perhaps to observe one of the great feast festivals, celebrations. And as Mary and Joseph are there and on their way now back to Nazareth, about 30-mile journey, into the journey, thinking that perhaps Jesus was with some of the other family members or friends as boys would be together playing, they suddenly become aware that, that as they make camp for the evening that Jesus isn't there. Obviously, their concern, they turn around and they make their journey back to Jerusalem to find where could Jesus possibly be. So they would begin to look at all the normal places that you would find a 12-year-old playing in the park, perhaps, or shooting marbles or some other kind of a game that you would think a 12-year-old boy might be interested in. And finally, ultimately, not finding Jesus at any of those places, they make their way to the temple and to their utter amazement. There is Jesus as a 12-year-old boy sitting in the midst of the scribes and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and they are aghast at the wisdom of this 12-year-old boy as they are engaging him, and he is engaging them in conversation. And, and Mary, with the angst of a mother, comes rushing up to him. I can see it in my own eyes, saying, Son, what in the world are you doing? Do you not know how we have been worried to death over you? And Jesus, at 12, with a deep conviction of what his real purpose and mission in life is about, looks, I think, with love, to his parents and says, didn't you realize that I had to be about my father's business? Years later, Jesus would be approached by one of the other teachers of the law in the evening and saying to him, you have to be from God. Obviously, no one can do the things that you're doing. No one has the authoritative uh, teaching that you have unless truly God is with them. And Jesus engages Nicodemus. And, and again, now Jesus lets Nicodemus know that, Nicodemus, I am here for our purpose. And my purpose is to bring new creation, to once again restore back what the enemy has tried to take. And Nicodemus says, I don't understand. What is this new creation stuff all about? And Jesus says, for God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. And God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather that the world through him might be redeemed, might be delivered from sin's grip, from sin's authority, from sin's rule. And 
from sin's reign. And so it was with that deliberate intent, as we read through the narrative story of Jesus, there comes a point in his earthly ministry where he fixes himself. In fact, Luke would say he stilled his face to go towards Jerusalem one more time, knowing full well that what lay before him was the ultimate completion of his mission, his life purpose. It would be the cross. And so Jesus makes his way there. And at the cross, Jesus takes head on all the fury, all that the evil one could throw against him. He would not let sin have final say in creation. Death was not going to be the the final completed end of all of creation. There was a new creation that was going to begin. And the cross is where it was going to happen. And sensing that, John records it this way. Later, as Jesus had been hanging on the cross, John records it later, knowing that now everything had been finished. And so that the scripture would be fully completed. Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine was given to him, soaked it in a sponge and put it on a stalk of hyssop. And by the way, there's an interesting story. It was hyssop, by the way, where the blood of the lamb, they would use the hyssop to put over the doorpost when the death angel was making his way through Egypt. And that doorpost that had the blood of the lamb over the doorpost was delivered from death. Interestingly enough, after Jesus tastes the wine, he says, it is finished. And with that, he bows his head and gives up his spirit. It had been done. The new creation was now was now affected. And with that, if you read it in the Greek words there, when it says he bowed his head, the actual word means that he pillowed his head. In all probability, he would have leaned it back after uttering the cry, going to the place of rest, the Sabbath rest, because you see, The new day, the new day was coming. It was finished. Sin's challenge had been answered by the power of God's love. And love won. And love still wins. And so I like to say to people, yes, it was finished on the cross. The work of of Deliverance from sin's grip, but it is still being finished, by the way. As you and I continue to live out and allow God's redeeming grace to be affected in our lives. And so the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, while it was finished in that one moment, is still being finished any and every time someone dares to take up the invitation, come. Live my life. Follow me. Experience my love. 
and my forgiveness. Be a part of my new creation story that's still being written and the scriptures tell us will ultimately, finally, fully be complete when Christ returns. It is finished. It is being finished and it will one day fully be finished. sealed. Go to your homes and wait and pray. <laughs> 